Everybody gathering together online, thank you so much for taking some time out of your week to be here with us. Hey, you can do a couple different things, whether you're online or you're hidden here in person and you're somewhat new to MCC, which can we just let them know, like, hey, if you've been here for a while, uh, thank you for coming and checking out MCC. Yeah, online people, I hope you can maybe hear that as well. Um, you can fill out one of those connect cards in the chair in front of you. You can take that back to the back. We got a little gift we want to give you. Uh, it's coffee, uh, so that's good. And not like a cup of it, like some that you can actually go buy and pick out on your own if you're more into like frappuccinos and all that fun stuff. So all that's back there is kind of our simple way of saying welcome home. We love this place and, and we have a feeling that you will too um, because God is here and, and he's moving, he's active, he's living through this. One of the ways where I saw that be made evident was this past Tuesday. Um, so I talked to you guys last week and we rallied and we shared and we clapped our hands a little bit because uh, a good bit of guys showed up together uh, for our men's ministry. We started that uh, a couple Tuesdays ago, 6.30 a.m. I invited all the men to be here, 6.30 a.m. to 7.30 on a Tuesday morning. And again, you never know what you're going to get when that happens, but we were overwhelmed with how many guys showed up. Now, most of you guys know this. You can do anything once and have a decent amount of people show up, but the true test whether it was worth this salt is the second one, right? And how many people actually show up for the second one? And I, I, again, I want to kind of celebrate, praise God a little bit. We actually had um, not just the same amount of people, but even more men showed up this past Tuesday uh, to dive into God's word together. So that's yeah, good. It's awesome. Uh, so what I would say there uh, to, to you fellows in the room who may be skeptical, 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 and are, you're like, hey, I don't know if this thing is for me. Um, look, um, if not just the same amount of guys because all those guys who were there the first time showed up for the second time, and then even more guys showed up. To me, that speaks to this reality that it was worth their time. And if you haven't come yet, I would say it's going to be worth yours as well. So let's dive into God's word together today. Um, we're going to be continuing on in our series called Solid Ground. And what we've been doing in this is walking through how to build a life that can withstand the storm. Uh, Jesus said that in this life, the unavoidable thing is you're going to face storms and the storms are going to come to test our faith. We've been leaning to this reality uh, that a faith that hasn't been tested is really a faith that can't be trusted. And we talked about how it's up to us to determine whether we are what Jesus uses in his parable, the wise builder or the foolish builder. The wise builder hears what Jesus says and then puts it into practice. Like it becomes their lifestyle. They actually do and trust and obey. But the foolish one goes, yeah, Jesus, I acknowledge you. That's uh, a good quote. Uh, that's a good principle, but doesn't really change their life. And we've been walking through this acronym, SOLID, S-O-L-I-D. So far, we've dug into the S, the first part. If we want to build a life on solid ground, we need to surrender. We need to surrender uh, to this God. We need to surrender all the lies that maybe we've been believing and we've been calling those things a life and we need to surrender to, to God and his will and his way and why he actually created us. We started out with this big idea and we've been walking through Genesis a whole lot of going back to our original intent. So if we're gonna surrender, we gotta surrender this whole reason we're even here in the first place. The reason we even have a life to build in the first place. And we went back there to God's very beginning plan and we were created to glorify and magnify him. We were created in his image, with his authority. And so what surrendering looks like means going, God, you purchased the fact that I could even have life in the first place. And I'm surrendering this life to you. Not my way, not my will, but your will in your way. And then from there, we talked about obey. Because it's one thing to say, I surrender. And God's really not after us just saying, I surrender. He's after us showing, I surrender. And we show, I surrender by obeying. Obeying the very next thing that God tells us to do, the moment after we say, I do surrender. So he says, I, I surrender. And he says, well, stop living together. Well, we're gonna, shoot, we're gonna show whether or not he's really the one we obey or whether or not he really is Lord by how we surrender to what he tells or by how we obey 
what he tells us to do immediately after we say we are surrendered. We talked about last week, this overwhelming you know, reality that we actually are royalty. Like in Christ, we are royalty. And again, we're the same people who burn their mouths on Hot Pockets and, and get, you know, we don't know what time our kids' school gets out, even though there are actual kids. And like, we're like, I think it's 3.15, 3 o'clock. I can't remember. Let's just show up early. Uh, hang out in the car rider line uh, and pray for people. So we have these things that go in our life. And God says, you're royalty. And cover to cover, we find in the Bible, he says, you're actually called to reign. And this kingdom life that we have now is training for reigning. It's training to be what God's called us to be. And if you missed any of these last couple of weeks, I would say go back and lean into them. Um, last week, we spent specific time leaning into uh, the male role and what God calls us to obey as kingdom builders. And so if you're a fellow, your guy, you missed that last week, I would say go lean in and dive into that. Today, we're gonna talk about love. Everybody say love. You have to say it like that with it, not an O, but a U in it. Love. We're gonna talk about love. And the reason we're going to talk about love today is love is centrifugal to this whole building process. And there's no coincidence that when you look at the word solid, where's L? It's right in the middle of it. And I would say in the same way that, that the word solid has L right in the middle, that if we're going to build our lives on solid ground, love is in the middle of it. And if you take love out, the whole thing falls. You won't build a house if it's not built with love at the very center. So you can go all the way back. We can start at surrender. The only reason that you're gonna surrender is I'm surrendering out of love. I'm not surrendering out of fear. I'm not surrendering out of um, the negative repercussions that I may avoid by surrendering. I'm surrendering because I love Jesus and I see how he surrendered his life to me. And you go to obedience. I'm not obeying you, God, because I don't want punishment. I'm not obeying you because I want the mansion on the hill. I'm not obeying you, God, and doing what you tell me to do because I think I get things in return. I'm obeying you, God, because I love you and I made that love, that love burst out of my life because I saw how much you love me. And Jesus, I saw how you obeyed the Father and gave your life, how you took a cross up a hill called Calvary and obediently gave your life for my sake. We can look at, um, maybe you forgot what these were, but I, the I we're going to get to next week, is all about being intentional. And love, love is intentional. And if it's not intentional, it's not love. Because hear me on this and write this down. You can tweet me on this. You can be lazy. You can be intentional. But you can't be both. You can be lazy or you can have love. But you can't have both. You can have somebody say, hey, I love you. But then when they're lazy and lackadaisical and, and you never see any of that comes around, it makes us question, do you really love me though? Love is intentional. And then the D means defend. And in love, we now can stand with steel in our spine against any enemy that would seek to kill, steal, and destroy. Not because we're brave and confident and proud, but because we know we fight on the side of love and love wins in the end. See, if you take love out of the equation, it all falls, it all crumbles. And so today, we're gonna to lean into Jesus's definition of love. Not our worldly definition of love, not uh, the notebook definition of love, not some vampire diary definition of love or Marvel comic book definition of love. We are going to go and find Jesus' definition of love. And this is kind of hard for me because, man, I, I'm the same person who can say, I love tacos and I wanna go eat, ta I love tacos, I wanna go eat them after this. And in the same breath say, I love my wife. And then in the same breath say, I love Christ. The reality is for us as in our culture, we give love to too many things. And we don't really have a good word for love that is actually truly Christ's definition of love. Because when I say I love tacos, I don't really love them. Like I'm not gonna like marry them or, or like let go of things. Like if you said, I will shoot you if you go eat tacos. You know what I wouldn't do? 
eat tacos. Like I can, I can not, I can go without it. But if you said, I'm going to shoot you if you continue to care for and love and, and go try to see your family. Well, I'm going to take that risk because I love them. And so love is hard. It's such a huge part of our culture. We hear it in all the songs that we like. Raise your, raise your hand if you listen to Christian, Christian music on the way to church today. Almost everybody else. Everybody else listens to other stuff, which I don't blame you. J93 and 104.7 are rough. And I'm sorry if you work for one of those people, but it's, it's rough. It's, how many times can we listen to Casting Crowns? Come on, guys. Um, sorry, just personal opinions at this point. Um, but all the songs, you know, and again, you can get off of those two radio stations again, get anything else. You can go on the Spotify, listen to Top 100. All these songs are about love. All of your favorite movies and all your favorite TV shows, they're all about love. And why is that? What if it was actually hardwired into our DNA? What if God, even pre-fall, hardwired love for each other and love for him into our DNA as his original creation? And creating our image, we actually would love. I think that may actually be the case. See, the reason the world is consumed with love is because whether Christian or not, every person was created in the image and likeness of God. Do you wanna know what God said he was? He said, I am love. So why is the world consumed with it? Because they're creating the image and likeness of God, a God who is love. Now, somewhere down the line, things have got distorted and messed up and jacked up. We're gonna talk about that a little bit today. And love has got redefined. So if you got a Bible, I wanna go and I wanna walk you to what I would call Jesus' new redefinition of what love is. If you got a Bible, go to Ephesians chapter five. Ephesians chapter five. Ephesians chapter five, if you're not there yet, just yell, hold up. I didn't hear anybody. Maybe online, y'all typed it in, but I think everybody's there. Ephesians chapter five, verses one through two. This is uh, God's new definition of love. Ephesians five, one through two. Follow God's example. All right, so we're not just supposed to believe something. We're not just supposed to think of something. We're not just supposed to agree that something is true. We're gonna follow God's example. Therefore, as dearly loved children. All right, again, today's gonna be a very exegetical sermon. I'm gonna spend really all of my time unpacking one word in this verse right here. And that's gonna be all of our time. We're gonna unpack what it means, the implications for Christ and the implications for you and your life. And that's pretty much what we're gonna do today. So um, the Bible is a very thick book. Uh, the best thing to interpret the Bible is the Bible. And so that's what we're gonna do a whole lot here today. Um, forgive me if you're like, hey, I wish I had, I don't think you ever say this, but I just wish I had more of Trent's opinions about stuff. Um, <laughs> <laughs> come over to our house, you know, any, any, any weekend. Well, I'll give you as many as I have. Um, that, that's not my goal. My, my goal is to tell you what God's word says about God's word. And that's, that's what hopefully is gonna happen today. And so let's walk through this. For God's, follow God's example, therefore as dearly loved children. Again, we're trying to figure out how do we love? What does love look like? How do I build my life on this firm foundation of love? Again, unpacked the point that Paul is the guy who's writing this in Ephesians and with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what the point is he's trying to make. First of all, he says, follow God's example, okay? So God's not asking you to do something that he hasn't already showed you how to do, okay? We're gonna show this. And again, when you hear follow God's example, it's like, okay, but that's God. Like, it's gonna gonna be hard. Again, he's gonna show you how and equip you how. Follow God's example as dearly loved children. And I love this point. And so many times we miss right over this point. 
when we talk about how do I love people? And it, it, man, it's hard to love people. And it's hard to grasp that, know how to do that, and how to be um, sacrificial in that. How do, I, how do I love? First and foremost, you will never love people. I would even argue you will never even fully love yourself until you understand that you are one of God's dearly loved children. You're not a junk, you're not messed up, you're not a piece of crap. Like, you are God's dearly loved child. And you will never be able to fully get to the place where you can grasp how to love yourself and how to love the lost, broken world around you and the people that matter most to you around you, how to love your church. You'll never fully grasp what it actually means to live in love until you first and foremost grasp that you are God's dearly loved child. You're not a working pro. You're, you're not his working pro. You're not. You're not a group project between Jesus, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. They're trying to figure you out. Like you are his dearly loved child, and every parent in the room knows what that feels like. Despite your kids throwing up on you when they're little, despite how disgusting their diapers can be, despite how angry and rebellious they can be through puberty, despite how they do really stupid things even into an adulthood, and then finally come back and say thank you, and you're like, despite even you. Um, having to let them move back in with you, despite all those things, they're still your dearly loved child. So you would be willing to sacrifice almost anything if you knew that it would better their life. Help them, protect them. That's the way God thinks about you. All right? So first, we gotta get that. The dearly loved children, verse two. Follow God's example. Therefore, dearly loved children. Okay, here's how I follow it. And walk in the way of love. If you're underlining stuff in your Bible, I would say that's where we start underlining stuff. Walk in the way of love. Walk in the way of love. Let's all just say that together. Walk in the way of love. It sounds good coming off the tongue. What he's inferring there, when he says walk in the way of love, it's not just an idea. It's, it's an active way of doing things. In the same way he would say, build your house on the rock, he's walking. It is an active verb. It is something that I'm perpetually doing and my walk is symbolic of my entire life. He says, walk in the way of love. It is the path that I am on. It is that straight and narrow path. Now, this is now where we see the example. Walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us. Just hang out right there. Well, that's, a, that's a lot of implications there about Christ, how Christ loved us. And here's where we see the redefinition. Here where, here's where we see what love actually is. Love just as Christ loved us. And again, remember how, what Christ and how he loved us isn't. How he loved us wasn't making us feel good about ourselves. How he loved us wasn't by doing only the things for us that would make us not angry. How he loved us was doing actually what was best, despite how we may have felt about it. This is how he loved us. Christ loved us and gave. Underline the word gave. He loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. For the rest of our time, understanding what in the world that word gave implies, what that means. What does it mean to have a God who says, follow God's example, walk in the way of love and love in a way that gives. What? I have to do, I can't, love isn't something I have. Love is something I show. Love is a verb now. Okay. Love in a way that gives as Christ gave his life as a fragrant sacrifice and offering to God. So what does it mean when it says that Jesus gave? How do we unpack that? First of all, we're gonna talk about four things specifically. First one is this, he gave eagerly. He gave eagerly. Now, I went back and forth as I was writing this stuff out of going, was it willing or eager? And at first I had, he was willing. 
but all the parents in the room know this. This one thing to have a kid who is willing to do chores, who comes in there. What do I have to do? And it's a whole nother thing to have the kid who's just, what do I get to do, mom? I can't wait to do these chores. Where's the trash at? Hey, let me, do you got any grease? I would love to go take that grease all the way out to the cold woods and dump it out there in the woods. I'm eager to do these chores, mom. It's a whole different thing to have a kid who's like that, right? To be eager, fired up about it. And listen, I think sometimes we have this, we have a Jesus who's just willing. Again, I'm going to forgive you? Good night. Get your crap. I'm willing. Like, it! I'm willing. That's not who he is. And the love that he showed us through his life and the love that he showed us on the cross, everything in his life points towards him not just being willing to go to the cross, not just being willing to suffer those things, but everything, if you read through the cover, uh, if you read through the gospels, you see a Jesus who is, who is willing, but also eager. And if you look at what you, if you try to, hey, what's motivating Jesus to do the things he does throughout his, uh, his earthly life on, on, on planet earth? Uh, most of the time, I would not say, okay, man, that's, he's trying to build a brand or he's trying, to get, he's trying to be influential. He would do a whole lot of things differently. If he was trying to influence the influential people, he's like, oh, I'm gonna go talk to those guys. Those, those are important, I'm gonna do those things. But what it seems like he was eager to do was to go to Jerusalem and to die for your sins. That's why he would walk up to religious leaders and go, you're a brood of vipers. Your, 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 your mother must have had an illegitimate relationship with Satan because you are children of Satan. I mean, this is, this is, the, this is the way he talks. And again, he, he's not pulling punches. He's not Jesus who just pets sheep with an ultra perm. Like he is real Jesus who is saying real things confronting the evil in this world. He tells his, even his best friends, he's saying, I'm gonna, and again, Listen to his most harsh comebacks to even his closest friends come when they try to talk him out of the thing that he is most eager to do. When he tells Peter and all the guys, and he's like, hey, I'm getting ready to go to Jerusalem. They're gonna spit on me. They're gonna flog me and they're gonna hang me on a cross and I'm gonna die. And Peter goes, surely not, Lord. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Not because he was just willing to go to the cross, but because he was eager to do it. And he knew there was an active enemy who was working inside of Peter's mind, even in that moment, to try to talk him out of that. So we have a God in Jesus who's not just, when he defines his love, not just saying, I'm willing to love you, but I'm eager to love you. And I'm gonna give my love eagerly. And there's a couple passages that I would say, uh, I'll lay this out very clearly. First one is um, John 10, 18. We see it even in his words. John 10, 18, Jesus is talking to the disciples. He's talking about his life. He says, no one takes it from me. The it that he's talking about there is his life. He says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. That's his way of saying, when you go back and, you, and when all this is transpiring, guys, it's gonna look like the centurions and the fake, uh, the, the trial with the religious leaders and, and Pilate. It's gonna look like they're all doing that and I'm just a, a victim in this circumstance. What Jesus is saying here, as he says this in John 10, 18, he is saying, I am not the victim. I'm doing this willingly. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority, which means that, and he said this, even, I could snap a finger and, and legions of heaven's armies will come down and knock everybody here on their tail. And everybody could know that I am Lord of Lords and King of Kings in that way, but I'm choosing to do it a different way in a way 
that will forever redefine what sacrificial love looks like. And so they won't think of it in thinking of a throne. They'll think of it in thinking of a cross. He says, I have my own authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up. I love this last passage because it points to the next aspect of what it means to give sacrificial love. He says, this command I received from my father. Remember, we've been talking about this whole uh, series of uh, solid ground. Where does it start? It It starts with surrendering, surrendering to God's will and his original intent for your life and then obeying. And we see that here in this passage. Jesus is going, I am... I'm not being taken advantage of. I'm laying my life down on my own accord, but that's coming from somewhere. I'm doing that because the Father has commanded me to do that. And I think sometimes we come to churches and we sing all these songs about Jesus loved me so much and Jesus loved me so much that he gave his life for me on the cross, but I want you to understand something. Um, It is a heresy to think that Jesus' primary motivation for going on the cross is so that he could get you to heaven. His primary motivation for going to the cross, going through what he went through, was to be obedient to the Father and thus magnify and glorify him. You are a part of the package deal. You're icing on the cake. It's, it's to glorify, magnify God. And you're, you're included in there. It was obedience. That's what, that's what it was about after. And that's the second aspect of why he gave. He gave in obedience to the Father. That was what sacrificial love looked like for him. It's I'm, I'm eager to do this because I'm eager to live my life in obedience to the Father. And that's the aspect of what this love that gives looks like. Next thing that we see, we see this through his life, is it wasn't just eager to give. It wasn't just in obedience to the Father to give. It was a giving that led him straight into difficulty and death. Mark 10, 33 through 34, he calls it. It says, we are going up to Jerusalem. And every time you read Jerusalem in the Bible, when Jesus is talking about, we're going up to Jerusalem, we're going down to Jerusalem. Anytime he talks about going to Jerusalem, that is Jesus' symbolic way of saying, I'm going to my death. Uh, that's, that's where it's gonna happen. He knows that. He says, anytime he talks about, I'm going to Jerusalem, that's where it's gonna happen. Every time people are trying to talk him out of going to Jerusalem, they're trying to talk him out of going to the place where he's gonna be crucified for our sins. He says, we are going to Jerusalem, he said, and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and they will condemn him to death. And then they're gonna hand him over to the Gentiles. That was the baton pass from the Jews to the Gentiles. And here's where he made it really clear what was gonna happen in verse 34. He gets handed over to them. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. See, Jesus was fully aware, fully cognizant of the reality that was facing him if he followed through on what love would require of him. He wasn't surprised, like when he got there and they, 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 they went and took some briars and they started putting those things together and they started making it into a crown. None of that shocked him. When, when he's wiping centurion spit out of his eyes, he's not, oh, I had no idea this was coming. As, he's, as, as, as the follicles of his beard are being pulled out by men, he's not, he's not I had no idea that this was gonna happen. He's in pain, he's in agony, but it's all stuff that he anticipated, that he understood was part of his grand mission in obeying the Father, all of it. And he walks into it willing and obedience to the Father into great suffering, pain, and death. And he does it for all and for one. He does all of that for all of us and for one of us. I think sometimes we can, in our over-individualized, over-individualistic 
society who's trying to create a brand, build a platform or, or be noticed and we have profiles and all these other types of things and we kind of manicure an image and everything else. We can make everything kind of revolve around us and, 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 and Americans are defined by being individualistic. We can miss out on this fact that Jesus didn't just come to die for you. He is not just your personal Lord and Savior, but he is the personal Lord and Savior of the whole entire mankind, that, that he is our Savior. And that he died not just to... Um, create this new good way of thinking and this new good way of doing these things. He, he died and gave his life so that he could regenerate and, and make new this thing that he would call his church. And he began to identify himself as in all of his parables, he, he would talk about I, the, the groom. I'm the groom. I'm the leader. In, in my church, they're my bride. And this is why we have passages like um, Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. Husbands, this is a great place to lean in and listen to. There's some stuff in here that you can kind of just get secondhand. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Uh-oh. Husbands, love your wives the way Christ loved the church. Wait, you mean die for her? Yes. But it's easy to say I'd take a bullet for her. It's a whole different ballgame to say, like, I'll take a day off for her. I'll ask her how, what I can do to help before I go sit down. I'll, that, that's, again, don't go to, to take up the cross sacrifice if you haven't gone to pick the kids up from school sacrifice. <laughs> One precedes the other. It says, husbands, love your wives the way Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And this is why, to make her holy. Which, <clears throat> side note there, what this shows here, if Christ loves the church the way a husband is supposed to love the wife and he did that to make her holy. Fellas and women, this is, this is an everybody thing here. That means that marriage, friends, is not something that God gave to you so that you could be happy. Marriage was given to you for the same reason all this has happened. And it's that word right there, to make her holy. Marriage is not about your happiness, it's about your holiness and how God will move and work and bring all of that to its fruition. And so even for the people who are not married in the room, um, even the goal of marriage was not happiness. And some of there's probably people in the room who are going, man, if I, if I, I'd be happy if I could just get married or I'd be happy if I could just X, Y, Z, fill in the blank. God's going, my goal, even in marriage was holiness. And here's something that's great to know. You don't have to be married to be holy. There's big freedom. You're let off the hook. You can be holy. You can be as holy as God would want you to be without ever being married. Holy. Cleansing her, he's talking about what Jesus did for the church, cleansing her by washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church. Again, he did this not just for a few people. He did this to create an, a family, a radiant church without stain, wrinkle, or any other blemish, but holy and blameless, okay? So he died for all, but he also died for you. You specifically. Maybe you never thought about this before, but if you were the only person that ever existed on the face of earth, like if God created Adam and Eve and they did their thing and they jacked it up and they had one kid and you were that kid, your parents lived 930 some odd years and then you're left. It's just you. I believe the same redemptive mission of Jesus would have happened even then. Jesus would have came, he would have given his life for you if it had only been you. And he didn't, Go and do all of that so that you could be a better version of you. 
He didn't do all that so that you could be someone who would be living their best life. He came and he went through what he went through and he gave that sacrificial life and he showed that sacrificial love so that you could be actually made new. And I love the way Galatians 2.20 says it and I'll continue to pound my head against this until I stop seeing Christians post things like I'm trying to be the best version of myself on the internet. Look at Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. In Paul's theology, there is no room for a better version of his self. That version is dead. It's gone. It, it doesn't exist. It's not here anymore. He says, I no longer live. It, I, you, it cannot get any simpler than that. I no longer live, but Christ who lives in me. This life, th- th- these words you hear coming out of my mouth, my hope and my prayer that I, I like, this is Christ doing this. This is, this is Christ coming out through me. The way you parent this week, the way you live this week, the way you work this week, the what you look at online, the prayer that it would be Christ coming out of you. He says, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, this is now he said, okay, Christ lives in me. Here's how he lives through me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith. Faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He loved me and he gave. You don't have that first part without the second part. You don't have a God who loves you. This is Jesus' redefinition of what love is. You don't have a God who loves you if he's not a God who gave himself for you. He gave himself. And here's why he gave himself. This is the number four. He gave himself, not just eagerly, not just in obedience to the Father, not just into difficulty and death, and not just for all and for one, but he gave it to bring redemption, to bring redemption, to redeem you out of the sin-scarred, broken, messed up, shame-filled, depressed, and anxious life that you would have apart from him, to redeem you, to say, you were one who was fully on the hook for your sins, and the repercussion, again, we went all this way back to Adam's original command in the garden. When God said, don't eat of this, he says, if you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. God always lays the consequences right out there in the front. And without Jesus, the consequences of our sin is still exactly the same. You will surely die. And the only way to circumvent surely dying is to put faith in the one who surely died for you. So that you could have life, so that you could have hope, so that you could be redeemed out of a broken, messed up life have a new story. And I love stories like that. And I love the stories of redemption, of, of people coming out of addiction, uh, people coming out of uh, broken homes, people uh, breaking generational curses, people um, going from, um, I was a child of an abuse into then becoming parents who are protective and, and encourage and, and lift up their children. I love those things. It reminds me of the simple reality that Jesus is still changing lives. He's doing it today. He's doing this in your heart. He's doing it in our lives. He does it to bring us into redemption. So if this is the new definition, if this is, this is what it looks like to love, if this is what walking in the way of love looks like, that it gave, and here's what gave means. Gave is eager, gave is in obedience to the Father, gave is in difficulty and to death for all and for one and to bring redemption. Then here's some great things about this. This means that there is no longer anything that we can define or call love that is not sacrificial. That where there is no sacrifice, there is no love. And to say that I have love and not have sacrifice is like saying I have an ocean, but it has no water. 
And so you can, you can call whatever feelings or emotions or a lust and, and, and all these warm and fuzzies that you have going on inside of you that maybe we, we mislabel as love. But if there is not sacrifice, then it is not love. And in Jesus' new definition of love, love is no longer something that we have. Love is now something that we show. Love went from being a noun and Jesus makes it a verb. It is active. It is sacrificial. It, it is moving. It is doing it is not sedentary, it is not lazy, it is intentional. Love is now a verb from this moment forward. So, again, those four things. Love is eager, it's in obedience to the Father, it's in the difficulty in death, it's all for one, and it's to bring redemption. Well, that's how it looked out through Jesus. What in the world are those implications for us now? To say, how do we live in this sacrificial love? How do we practice this sacrificial love? And to be people who no longer go, okay, well, I have love, and then there's sacrificial love. And to go, no, 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 there's only one, and it's sacrificial love. Everything else is a good, warm, fuzzy feeling. Other, everything else is lust, our preference. But if we're going to call it love, then it's a given that it's sacrificial. So let's talk about that first one. If Jesus says, my love, the new definition of sacrificial love is eager, well, how can we learn how to eagerly love even the people in our lives that are really hard to love? How do we do that eagerly? Not just willing, like, okay, I guess I'll love you because I have to. <laughs> but eagerly walk into it. I think our only hope is found in verses like uh, Philippians 2, 3 through 11. And again, I told you I'm not gonna give you a whole lot of my opinions. I'm gonna read through this. Man, it is super self-explanatory. If there's ever one verse or one passage to just like tattoo into your soul, it's Philippians 2, 3 through 11. He says this, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, which DQ'd us all right off the bat. Because um, we already did some stuff out of selfish ambition or vain conceit this morning. Um, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. That means despite whatever somebody's uh, self-worth may be or their net worth may be, that even if it's the homeless person begging for money on the side of the road in downtown McDonough or the uh, Shaquille O'Neal, uh, probably I would venture out to go to the wealthiest person in McDonough, that regard, like, oh, we all would see Shaq and go, Shaq is worth more than I am. And so is a guy begging for money if you're in Christ and if you're gonna love the way he loves. Everybody is worth more than me. Everybody is of more value than me. Verse four, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. He's, he's getting after motives. And I said this in the first service, I guess I can say it to you guys too. The problem with following Jesus for a while, and this is a danger. Some of you guys have been following Jesus for a long time. This is one of the biggest dangers in following Jesus for a while, especially if you have a leadership role, you're a parent, a grandparent, you're a boss, something like that, and everybody knows you follow Jesus. Here's one of the most dangerous things about following Jesus for a while. You become better at disguising your motives because you learn more Bible verses. And the more Bible verses you know, the easier it becomes to describe, to, to hide your impure motives. See, on the outside, we look like this is all for God. And I got verses to back that up. But on the inside, I have preference and I want it to be my way. So I'm going, I'm going to um, use a few passages of scripture to talk about this in this way that I know and I'm gonna pick and choose and cherry pick them off and I'm gonna present my argument and make it a God thing when really it's just a me thing. This is where it's really dangerous. And so he's after motives. He's saying your motive has genuinely got to be 
not out of self-interest, but in the interest of the other person. So I'm not just raising uh, well-behaved kids so I feel better about me and feel like I made it out of my broken, jacked up thing. I'm raising well lo- kids that love Jesus because I want them to love Jesus. I- I'm, not going, I'm not sending my, my teenagers on a mission trip so that they get some good life experiences. I'm not sending them on a mission trip so that they um, learn what things are like in the rest of the world and they come back home and they're more grateful. I'm sending them on the mission trip so that they learn that they are part of the grand mission of God. I don't care. My ulterior motives has nothing to do with them uh, coming back and being more grateful for what they have at my house. I'm sending them out there to, to realize that you are called to live sent, sacrifice your love. Verse six, he's talking about Jesus. Who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He let it go. He said, I could, another one of the passages, translate, our, our Bible verses, our translation says he, he chose to let go of that. He said he chose to not have that as something he would hold on to. Verse seven, rather, he made himself, underline this word, Nothing. I would spend the rest of my Christian life trying to figure out what in the world that word means. I mean, do you, do you ever just pause for a second and just, just, just come headlong into the grandeur of God to go? He is literally everything. If this verse is true, he became nothing. I mean, just sit in that for a second. That the God who put all of this together, who, who was there in the garden, who, who was all made mountains, made love, made burial, made, made, put all of this stuff into creation, is God and is perfect. And it says he became nothing, nothing. I mean, what kind of God does that? Nothing. Became Nothing. He made himself nothing. Again, he wasn't a victim. He didn't have everything that he was stripped of him by the religious. He didn't have everything that was of him stripped because of your sins. He made himself nothing. By taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Became nothing, went to the lowest of low, died the worst of the worst death, and therefore, I love that, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, the name of Jesus. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Again, see what's happening there. This is this, this, this divine, I don't know, slingshot, the divine reversal. You can call whatever you want to call, but Jesus low. I mean, it almost is like a slingshot. Like if I take a slingshot and I just pull this thing as low as I can possibly go, and I just finally hit nothing down here. This is, what he, this is what he does. And this is why I need you to, like all of the gospel is this tension between God holding the slingshot in the band here, all of the gospel, all of what you see doing between healing blind people, between uh, washing all the disciples' feet, everything is just this, this thing being lowered and lowered and lowered and lowered, lowered, no home, just, you know, family abandoning him, family turning their back on him, all the way up to being flogged, whipped, beaten, cat of nine tails, all of this going onto the cross, being put in a borrowed tomb. All of this is just pulling this tension down. And at the end of the third day, God releases it and through the roof. Now, 
he's no longer low. He's the name above all names. He's the king of kings. Everybody, whether they want to or not, is going to acknowledge you are in fact Lord. You are in fact Savior. And so he says, okay, we got to have that attitude. And again, it starts with checking our motives. So if I'm going to uh, willingly love you, I've got to first and foremost see you the way God sees you. See, see, see you regardless of your sins, mistakes, uh, whatever gender you choose to identify as, I, I got to see you as God sees you. Someone he would die for. I think the thing that keeps us so much from this is this little word that's gotten a lot of play lately called entitlement. Entitlement. See, the reason why I'm kind of hesitant sometimes to sacrificially love people the way Jesus does is because I'm afraid that I'm not gonna get something in return from it. Like if I take you out to lunch, I'm afraid that the next time it comes around, you may not take me. I, I'm, I'm afraid that maybe in my, in my relationship with my spouse, that if I'm laying myself down and I'm, I'm doing these things and everything else and I'm saying, how can I help? How can I help? How can I help? And then something comes around where I need some help. I'm afraid that, you know, what if you don't reciprocate and bring that back? And Jesus is saying here that if you're gonna live under my new definition of sacrificial love, it means there is no place for entitlement in it. I would say it like this, entitlement is the enemy of love. To say that I'm entitled for you to give that back. It just goes, nope, regardless, I love. I love you, I care for you. And I do that because Jesus, if, if that whole passage in Philippians is true, what that means is Jesus released all of his entitlement too. That's what that whole passage is about, being in the very nature of God. He did not consider equality with something to be grasped. Equality with God, something to be grasped. That means he let go of his entitlement. He was entitled to be fully God and to be worshiped as fully God. He says, I'm gonna release my entitlement for the sake of love. And he invites us to do the same. Second part, obedience to the Father. Not just being eager to sacrificially love people, but we're loving people in obedience to the Father. And here... In, in the most simplified redneck way of saying this, um, it's hard to give what you ain't got. And so we can look around and go, man, why is it so hard to love people? I would dare say the reason it's hard for you to love people is because you have not fully experienced the love of your father yet. You don't know what it's like to be loved. So it's really hard to give it when you ain't got it. You know, um, Bible talks about David as a man after God's own heart. And that's huge when you understand the hurdles that he had to get to to get there. David was the son who was the runt of the litter, who his dad, Jesse, knew that the prophet Samuel was coming to his house. Like he knew he was coming to his house to pick the next king. And Jesse, David's dad, he leaves David in the field. Again, if you knew one of your boys was going to be the next king, wouldn't you at least dare to bring all of them in? Say like, it could be this one, it could be that one, it could be that one. As long as it's one of my kids who's the next king of Israel, I'm that proud dad moment, right? At least I'm in the field. And what's so amazing about that verse when it says David was a man after God's own heart, and I felt this as a man of God and uh, son of a father, and most of you men in this room may have felt this as well. It's really hard to be a man after God's own heart when the one man, your dad, who you wanted to be after your heart, wasn't. It's really hard to be a man of God when the one man you wanted to be after your heart wasn't, maybe still isn't. 
This is where God comes in and goes, despite your deficiency on the love from a father, an earthly father, when you realize, again, go all the way back to the verse we started with, when you realize that you are God's dearly loved children, you're his dearly loved son, you're his dearly loved daughter, well, that changes everything. And now that big question, a huge question, a huge life question of do I matter to God? It's been answered. It's been, it's been answered at the cross. And we talked about this a little bit, our, our men's thing on Tuesday. Uh, men in the room, uh, just draw your attention to this. The way your kids answer the question, do I matter to dad, has the most influence on how they answer the question, do I matter to God? If when they answer the question, do I matter to God, they like, or do I matter to dad? And they're like, oh, well, he's usually never around. He works long weekends, man. When he's here, he's kind of angry. He's kind of disengaged. He won't, he won't, he's blow me. Like he, I can't remember last time he called without me calling him first. He always whines at me. You know, I, whenever I say, hey, it'd be good to hear from you. He's always like, well, you got a phone too. And it's always some excuse and always something. And when I do talk to him, it's, you know, it's, you know, have you checked the oil in your car? It's, it's never anything that has, and I got stuff going on. I'm, I feel lost. How they answer the question, do I matter to God? I believe has more influence on, on, on uh, is defined and not defined, but a lot of it's wrapped up in, do they matter to you? Husbands, I would say the same thing about your wife. How she answers the question, do I matter to my husband, is primarily influenced, is a primary influencer of how she'll answer the question, do I matter to God? And again, I, again I'm not saying that we have any better or unique role than you women in the room. Because again, I think your kids, uh, moms in the room, ladies in the room, uh, how they answer that question, do I, do I matter to you, regardless of who you are? Sacrificial love makes it clear to whoever I'm loving, you in fact do matter to me. I'm giving you my time, my devotion, my attention. It is obvious and clear that you have this. And when that, that's clear, for both the giver of the love and the receiver of the love, there's this confidence to know that I'm seen, I'm heard, and it's and it's growing in the right direction. Last one, or second to last one. It's for all and for one. And this is where we love, not just the individuals in our life that are easy to love. This is where we love everybody. And again, maybe you've heard it said before, uh, you don't have to like them, you just gotta love them. Right, we've heard that, we've told our kids that maybe. You don't gotta love them, or you don't gotta like them, you just gotta love them. That's good. How did you know that somebody loved you, though? The, the way I knew that somebody loved me was they actually treated me like they liked me, right? You know, that's kind of what precedes it. <laughs> like, hey, what good does it do if you are over there 500 miles away in your heart going, I love you. <laughs> I'm over here in my mess going, I wish somebody showed me some love. And that's a lot of the world looking on around us. We can say, I love those people in China. I'm praying for them. I love those people in Afghanistan. I love those people down the road from me. I love them. I love my neighbor. Yeah, okay. Again, love's not something you have anymore. Love's something you show. That's Jesus' new definition. And it's not just for the people that are easy to love. It's for everybody. It's for one. It's for all. And the last one is for the sake of redemption. And this, to me, this has got to be like 
the breath of fresh air in all of this to go, okay, I'm not just loving them so that they feel better about themselves. I'm not just loving them so I feel like I'm uh, you know, a, a good person. I'm loving them so that their life can be saved and their eternal destination can be different. I think when we begin to look at people as not just human beings who have an opinions, but as, as souls that have eternal destinations, they're gonna spend eternity either in heaven or eternity either in hell. When we begin to look at people like that and we realize, okay, I'm loving them because my love, again, I'm not gonna redeem them, but through my love, I can pick you up, so to speak, and take you all the way to the Redeemer, Jesus. By the way, I love you sacrificially. And you've, you will have had context clue after context clue after evidence after evidence after evidence of what sacrificial love looks like. By the way, I love you. And it's all going to be Jesus living through me. That's the whole Galatians 2 thing. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives through me. And then that person is eventually going to bump in, have this head-on collision with Jesus and his redemption. And you plant the seeds you tilled the soil and Jesus is going to make the miracle of salvation happen in their life. So to end today, I got two things um, I want to lean into. One is just kind of a point and the other is a question. It's this. First thing, if you want to think about yourself less, which I don't know about you, but man, sometimes I can get this vicious cycle of like, I'm just me, just thinking about myself. If you want to think about yourself less, think about the cross more. If you want to think about yourself less, which I don't know, I'd love to forget about all the things I got going on. Think about the cross more. And then what happens is I take all of my thoughts off of myself. I put them on the cross. And you know what? And the cross isn't just like this big inverted trampoline that I just take all my thoughts and boom, and it just bounces back on me and somehow they're better. I take all the thoughts and worries and concerns I have about myself, my failures, my shortcomings, and I focus on the cross. And then what Jesus does is he takes those and he keeps them. He says, son, I've got you. Daughter, I've got you. We got this. I knew, like, <laughs> thank you for letting me know that you were in debt. I had no idea. He's ne- he, God has never said that on the other end of one of your prayers. Oh, really? You struggle with that. Dang, thank you for letting me know. I'll write that in my journal. He's never said that. He's like, I know, I know, I know, I know. And sometimes the things we really need and the things we really need in this life, they can only be found by turning out of a uh, self-centered love and then going to a sacrificial love. And the way you learn how to sacrificially love is you look to the cross and then Jesus, instead of handing you back more of your worries in just a redeemed way, he gives you back people to go love. He starts drawing your attention to the people in your neighborhood, where you live, where you work, where you play, where you do church. He says, all right, I got you. Go love them sacrificially the way I have. And here's a, a question that I would say is a key indicator of whether or not you're still stuck on yourself is this. If God answered all the prayers that you are currently praying, who would benefit the most? If he answered all the prayers that, you, that you're currently praying, who would benefit the most? For most of us, it's us. And I think when we get out of this, we begin to understand the call on my life is to sacrificially love. And, and this is the foundation I build my life on to say, I'm not building a kingdom for me. I'm part of God's kingdom and I'm building this for the redemption of all mankind, this grand big mission that he's called me to be a part of. And because of how much he's done for me, again, remember, he became nothing for you. He became a slave. He, he, he let go of his entitlement for you specifically. When, you, when the weight of that hits you like sitting under Niagara Falls, you can't help but pop up out of the water and go love other people the right way, sacrificially. My prayer is that as we get ready to sing this last song, 
that you would want, embrace the call to that. And then I wanna speak to the other person in the room who you've never surrendered to that. You hear this sacrificial love of God and, and, and it's something that you've never gone, Jesus, I see what you surrendered for me. Now I am surrendering my whole life, my whole will, my whole future and the forgiveness of my past to come and follow after you, to love the way you've loved me. That's called salvation, friend. And it's on the line this morning. And my prayer is that you would receive that in. You would pray and invite Jesus in your heart that you would say, Jesus, I surrender. And that maybe even you would take the first step of that surrender, which I believe is being baptized. You you go and you look in in the word like over and over again. There's this huge crowd of people. They're the same people who are in the audience the day Jesus is going to the cross. And they've got this, um, this rebel against Rome murderer named Barabbas. And then they've got Jesus, holy, perfect lamb of God, uh, never sinned a day in his life. And, and Pilate comes out and he says, look, I'm going to let one of these guys go. Which one do you want me to let go? And they all shout Jesus and they shout. And then he's like, okay, well, what do you want me to do to him? And the crowd chants crucify, crucify, crucify. And that same crowd is a lot of them are gathered together around Peter as he's preaching the gospel after the man that they crucified is now resurrected. And Peter preaches the gospel the same way I've preached it to you today. And in their hearts, they go, what should we do? He says, pray, repent, and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And friends, that's what I'm inviting you into this morning. If you wanna get baptized, um, I'll, I'll be up here after church is over. You can come talk to me if you're a little bit more bashful. That's fine, no worries. You can mark that on that connect card as the next step that you wanna take. And we'll be in, if you're watching online, you can fill that out there online or I guess like this, online, fill that out as well. And um, we'll be in touch because that's the first step of surrender in this faith that we call Christianity. And uh, we're gonna get ready to receive communion. And I pray that you see what surrender cost. And you see that there is now a new definition of love and you're seeing the sacrifice of it in your hands. I pray you take your hands from here on out and let love no longer be a noun to you, but let love be a verb, something that you don't just say, but you show because you have a God who showed it to you through his poured out blood, his broken body. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. But when we really look at the lives that we're living, at the things that we're facing, all of this makes sense. It's not as complicated as we've made it. You've been there all along, relentlessly chasing us down. All the times we tried to hide in the shame, you were lighting it up. All the times that uh, we tried to climb up mountains of success and notoriety, you were just one ladder rung behind climbing right after us. When we walled ourselves in behind the lies that the enemy had told us and we had believed, you come in, you knock, and then when we don't answer, you kick that thing in and you come after us. I pray today that for the lost, the weary and the broken, that they feel you coming after them. And I pray they surrender today. It's too late. In your name.